Welcome to Uproar. We're here on Uproar Radio with Bill and uh, Lydia Wiley Kellerman. Um, could you all start off by introducing yourselves? Um, uh, my name is Bill Wiley Kellerman. I'm a United Methodist pastor. Uh, we're sitting in St. Peter's Episcopal <laughs> Church, which I serve for uh, 11 years. Um, I'm also a nonviolent community activist and uh, teach at Ecumenical Theological Seminary, and I'm an author and writer as well. And I'm Lydia Wiley Kellerman, daughter of Bill, um, born and raised in the city, um, a mother of two kids, uh, community activist, and also stepping into a new role of editor of G's Magazine, um, and also the co-editor of a blog called RadicalDiscipleship.net. All right. So um, I wanted to reach out to you all because I followed the story on the Q-Line situation. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and uh, where the idea came about for you all to uh, block the Q-Line? We were both part of um, the Poor People's Campaign, which was bringing back the movement that Martin Luther King was part of 50 years ago. Um, and it involved six weeks of actions in um, states all across the United States where we acted every Monday um, at the state capitol doing direct action um, to talk about the um, moral narrative um, in, this, in this country. Um, and each week we focused on, on different issues from systemic racism to the environment. Um, you can chime in on Militarism. On um, labor. Um, uh, disability. I mean, uh, with within the range of uh, Dr. King's what he called the giant triplets of racism, militarism, and uh, uh, extreme materialism, uh, the war on the poor, poverty, uh, and the campaign added uh, environmental devastation as a as a fourth uh, evil or uh, reigning power in this time. So, all of the issues were framed under under those uh, four things. And so for five weeks, we acted in Lansing um, every Monday doing an action. Um, and there was a real commitment from the Poor People's Campaign that every, that the leadership really be taken by impacted people um, who have or are experiencing um, poverty. And then folks would act as part of that action, um, indirect action, um, leading to an arrest situation. Um, and so the last week, though, we decided to shift to act in Detroit instead, where the theme was really talking about what is the narrative and what is the moral narrative. Um, and so we wanted to focus on Detroit and the gentrification and the narrative that Detroit is a comeback city. Yeah, that's been a, uh, it's actually been a difficult, more difficult, I think, both nationally and locally to break into that uh, I mean, one version of it is uh, making America great again. Uh, there's a Detroit version of making Detroit uh, great again, um, uh, and all of which excludes uh, bad news about what's being done to, to poor and black folks uh, in the city. We're, we're in a moment in Detroit <clears throat> where the, the footprint of the city is being reduced 
um, to uh, certainly the riverfront, the Woodward Corridor downtown, but also certain select neighborhoods uh, where resources are being, being put. And people are literally being driven out of other neighborhoods uh, by a whole range of things, tax foreclosures, mortgage foreclosures, water shutoffs, school closings, shutting down of uh, bus lines, um, uh, water shutoffs actually being a, a primary one. And at this point, the Detroit Water and Sewage is actually talking about turning off the water mains to certain neighborhoods altogether. Uh, um, so that's part of concentrating people and resources and expelling poor and black folks uh, from the city that's been going on for, uh, for a while now. Um, and we kind of chose, there was actually a lot of pressure all along to say, why aren't you acting in Detroit? We were part of a national campaign and, and, and folks were acting at state capitals all over the country on these same days. Uh, and we actually jumped ship a little bit to, to come to Detroit. Um, we picked Campus Martius and Dan Gilbert as kind of the epitome of the comeback narrative of the city that uh, ignores, well, you know, ignores. I, I mean, Gilbert was head of the Blight Commission that surveyed the mm -hmm. city um, for, you know, marking what houses and virtually what neighborhoods would be set for, uh, be declared blighted and set for uh, demolition. And TARP money, the hardest hit funds that was set aside to keep people in their homes was actually used for those uh, demolitions. Yeah. Uh, so we focused on Campus Martius, Quicken Loans, the Q line uh, as a way of uh, uh, kind of going to the heart, to the symbolic heart of that. And we actually, um, just thinking of sort of the whole course of the action, um, we began at Central United Methodist and actually in a small garden on the side of their church that's a burial place for, um, for homeless folks and for people who die in hospitals and there aren't family to claim them. This is a place where ashes go and folks are remembered. And so we began as part of that, um, centering on who are the lives in the city that we want to pay attention and honor um, and use this action to, to speak with and for. Um, and then we walked to the water department and, and did talk specifically about the water shutoffs in the city. Um, and then from there, we traveled into campus marshes. And there were actually three parts of the action. And the first one, we climbed into the fountain um, in the center of campus marshes with buckets. Um, and, and the buckets you know, said things on them like water for Flint, not for profit, water for Detroiters, and reclaimed water as sacred um, as, and as important for for life and humanity and not for decorative gentrification. Um, so people climbed in and pulled water out, um, reclaiming that. Um, and then folks walked over and, and both blocked the Compuware building, which is where the headquarters is, um, and then shut down the queue lines going north and south um, on Woodward. Um, folks were not arrested for getting into the fountain, which I was surprised by, <laughs> uh, but were quickly arrested for blocking the entrances and then shortly after for, for blocking the, the queue line as well. All right. um, I want to talk a little bit about the impact of the uh, downtown development and the separation of church and politics. Um, 
I remember, I know Central United Methodist Church has been very active in a, a political events. Um, Carl and I even participated in the MLK March rally a few years ago. Um, can you tell us how can the church play its role of advocating for these communities that are missed? Um, the United Methodist Church has uh, many churches on the west side of Detroit, um, not too many on the east side of Detroit. Um, the po population decline for United Methodist Church has dropped on the east side of Detroit. Um, so how can churches play a role in <clears throat> sort of rebuilding these communities? Mm -hmm. Or um, what would you like to see from politicians more mm -hmm. in these communities? I think I would start by saying I don't think there's ever a separation between church and politics. That everything that we do, whether it is in speaking or not speaking, is political. Um, and so churches always have the opportunity to choose where to stand and when to speak and about what. Um, and that for a lot of churches, silence is just um, as powerful of a political act as choosing to speak. Um, and there's there are multiple narratives around development happening in Detroit, and churches get to decide what side they're on, <laughs> who they're in community with, um, who the relationships are, what the stories that they're hearing and listening to and retelling are. Um, that by the, you know, the gospel that we look at and the scripture that we uh, claim to follow, those are stories that are intensely political and consistently stand on the side of the poor um, and with um, people who are poor and marginalized. And I think to be church and to follow the gospel means to always stand on the side of the poor. And so in Detroit, the poor and marginalized are structurally and intensely being pushed out of the city, um, are losing their homes in favor of a development that's bringing in a lot of money for, um, I mean, if you walk downtown <laughs> versus if you did it six years ago even, um, it is mm -hmm. young white folks. Um, and and I, I know that claiming as a young white folk in this city, um, it's important to, to think of that for me and what that means being, being in this city. Uh, but that's not, the, you know, the demographics of the city. Um, and that, but that's who, who gentrification is focusing on. Sort of like um, when you talk about Dan Gilbert and uh, Mike Duggan, um, Mike Illich, these three kind of represent that downtown development. That's what's being pushed, promoted, but they don't represent the demographic behind that this is a predominantly black city. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. So... Um, they don't represent it and they're not acting, their policies How can they advocate not, yeah. for predominantly black, for a city that's predominantly black? Right. Um, I, I, just two things, one on the church. Uh, uh, church closings figure into the destruction of neighborhoods as well. Um, uh, the Roman Catholic, uh, the last round of Roman Catholic church closings in the in the archdiocese before the uh, archbishop uh, announced those, and those are very top-down in, in the Catholic uh, system. 
he sat down with the mayor at that time, uh, Mayor Bing, uh, who was the first one who was talking about downsizing the mm -hmm. city uh, to find out which neighborhoods would have a future and which would not. And church closings conformed to uh, that pattern. Uh, and it's also true that just as school closings, schools that anchor a neighborhood hold it together when those schools are closed by an emergency manager uh, appointed by the governor, not elected officials at all, um, th that affects the disintegration of the neighborhood. And the same with churches. So how, how Methodist churches, how startups happen in relation to uh, demographics and markets and uh, versus saying we're going to hold space in this neighborhood we're going to we're going to continue to be an anchor that really needs to be part of an urban um, strategy um, for the the uh, yeah I agree with Lydia entirely that you really can't ex uh, extract um, politics from the gospel. Um, I think of, you know, Mary, Mary's hymn uh, in Greeting Elizabeth, My Soul Magnifies the Lord, right? Uh, but that goes on to say, he's brought the mighty down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly and filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty, you know? And that comes back around in Jesus' Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, woe to you who are rich, you know, I mean, the, the, the gospel draws really, really clear lines uh, uh, in that score. Um, and in our trial, uh, we were actually, uh, I've just been acquitted by a jury uh, uh, in, here in Detroit in 36th District Court. Uh, seven of us were tried for blocking the queue line. It was the one particular piece of that larger uh, action, and in my closing statements, partly because the cross that I was wearing became a little bit of an issue in the, uh, uh, in a funny way in the trial, and so I, I spoke to it um, and talked about uh, Jesus and why I was there, uh, why I did what I did, um, not only following uh, someone who spoke that way about the rich and the poor, uh, but to begin his ministry saying the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news and is to the poor and uh, his ministry ends with an arrest uh, and a trial um, and though I said at that time there was no jury of his peers to uh, whose conscience could come into play in uh, in that situation, and I was really appealing to the jury to act on their on their conscience. And in my case, uh, they did. Two of us were acquitted. Now, um, in that situation, a reporter on the scene had asked if it was worth the arrest. Do you still believe so? <clears throat> um, yes, I do, uh, and um, I have to say, you know, we really hoped we would generate more media, more press. I'm really grateful for uh, a podcast like this, which is uh, an alternative form of media. It's very hard 
I mean, Dan Gilbert is the landlord for the news and the free press. Um, and, uh, and he has, actually the guy, one of the head of Rock uh, Security testified on the stand at our trial that they have an entire unit, a floor of people uh, at Rock Security whose job is simply to monitor media all day, social media as well as, as uh, mainstream media because they respond to it, suppress it, spin it. Um, so we didn't get any press. <laughs> I would just chime in on that too. Um, I think that question of was it worth it is always a question that gets raised in mm -hmm. civil disobedience of like, well, did it do anything? Did it change anything? Um, and I think, I do believe that sometimes it does. Um, and I believe that we do it anyway, right? We do it because it's right. We do it because it's how we live humanly, um, and we're not we're not dependent on on something to change in order for it to be worth doing. Uh, but I also uh, reflected on it in writing to about to my five year old about these actions because it was sort of the first time in his consciousness where my dad was consistently going to going to jail and, and even. Uh, for a different Poor People's Campaign action, served some time, served 10 days in jail for it. And so I needed to s explain to him, what is it, why, why is grandpa in jail? What does that mean? Um, and I think that there's, one of the things that I said to him was, was that question of, well, does it work? Does anything change? Um, and it, it was nice to reflect it in that to him, to think maybe nothing changes now, but that's now a story in his conscience. And maybe that's a story in other five-year-olds' conscience that in 30 years from now, they remember those stories and act out of them. And so the way that all of this work is intergenerational and part of the long arc of the struggle for justice, whether it changes anything in Gilbert right this second, um, it, it's a continuation to a much longer story that we're all hoping to act within. So um, I guess my next question would be, can residents and community leaders take action moving forward amongst themselves? Or are there any steps that they can take? Is there any ways that they can get involved with the Poor People's Campaign? Um, are you still working along with that? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, the way to join the Poor People's Campaign is uh, best through a website. There are hard copy ways to do it, but uh, michiganpoorpeoplescampaign.org, I believe, maybe .com. Uh, but if you look up, if you, if you uh, search Michigan Poor People's Campaign, you'll come up with the state organization, and we're affiliated with the, with the national campaign. The water struggle uh, specifically is... Uh, one that's uh, ongoing. We just lost a, an elder in that struggle, uh, Mama Lila uh, Cabell, uh, died within the last few days, and uh, so people are still reeling from that. But uh, out of this church, water distribution goes on on a, on a regular basis, and it's also the base for um, direct actions related to, to the water struggle as well. One thing that I 
that's also just sort of in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, when part of the every action that we did during the Poor People's Campaign involved direct action training. So beforehand we would do a day-long training that everyone participated in, but then we would always also meet for several hours beforehand to prepare for the action, to plan, to, um, to build some community um, that we would be acting in. Um, and one of the things that I was struck by, we would begin each time with a go-around of the circle that just said, hmm. why are you here? Why are you acting today? Um, and I think every single week out of the six weeks, there was somebody in that circle um, who was probably around 80 years old. And they said, I remember when the Poor People's Campaign happened 50 years ago and I didn't do anything. And I've regretted that for the last 50 years. And so in this moment, I can't not act. Um, and I think about how those folks were probably about my age um, when the Poor People's Campaign happened the first time. Um, and I think that's a real invitation and a call to us that we're living in a pretty dire moment. Um, both, I think, in Detroit and also, obviously, nationally and globally as well. And I think that's an invitation for us, that this is a moment to act. Um, and if we don't, we're going to be <laughs> regretting that for, for 50 years to come. Um, so I really felt their spirit as an invitation in to say, stand somewhere. Seven and a half years ago, uh, Lydia and her partner, Aaron, were married in this church, and I uh, uh, officiated and at that service, uh, for which uh, I, charges were brought against me in the, in the United Methodist Church. I considered that uh, primarily a pastoral act. They were members of my congregation. They're, they'd fallen in love. They were very serious in their commitments to one another. They'd been through premarital counseling. Um, and to, de to deny that uh, pastoral care of sacramental uh, participation in marriage would have been a, a violation of my, my duty as a pastor to provide pastoral care to uh, uh, my congregation. At the same time, I understood it also to be an act of ecclesial disobedience within the church because of the, uh, the strictures of the, of the discipline. And I was prepared, I think that's a contradiction within the, in the discipline is the call to care for uh, all members of the congregation uh, and at the same time be forbidden to provide sacramental care in, uh, in terms of marriage. Um, to, to certain people. Um, um, so, and I think we're at a point uh, where many acts of uh, ecclesial disobedience may be uh, summoned and, uh, and required. I find myself already thinking in those, in those terms within our church, given the, the decisions that uh, are being made, even as we speak at the uh, special general conference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it's not, there's no difference in acting between the political realm and the church realm. Um, 
what we're doing is we build community and we follow what we believe God is summoning us to do um, and we stand for justice. Uh, and that is wherever we find the injustice it needs to be named um, and called out. So I think the church is an institution, right? We, we know what church feels like. We've been in church. We've built that community. We understand what church is, and we need to call on the churches to be church. Um, that the institution can be flawed in the same way as our education institution or our political institution, um, and it becomes our work to, to stand for justice wherever we, we see that hate or exclusion um, or injustice being. We usually uh, invite people to just leave, like, a, hey, if people want to follow up with you or see more of your work or support your work, where should they go? Yeah. Um, where are you that from? Yeah, so, um, well, thank you all for coming on this show today. Thank you all for coming on this show today. Um, really appreciate your time. Um, if you want to leave any information where people could reach out to you, um, just share that with us. We're grateful to, to be on it and to spend some time with you. Um, I, yeah, I would love to have um, folks find G's Magazine, um, which is um, an actual physical publication. There's a clear commitment that this is an offline oasis, and we are uh, taking the chance that there is still something valuable about off-the-screen time. Um, and it's, it's a place of summoning stories that speak to um, exactly what we've been talking about today. It's uh, the intersection of art and justice and faith um, and a place where stories and writing and art can cause some holy mischief. And we would be delighted to have some other holy mischiefers join us <laughs> in that one. Jesus spelled G-E-E-Z. Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, I... Be glad to share my email if people want to follow up. Uh, it's B.W. Kellerman, two N's, and Kellerman, M-A-N-N, uh, at gmail.com. Um, I do have uh, beginnings of a website, which you can track down with books and articles and stuff. Uh, but I think email is the easiest way. You did write a book about Detroit which could be relevant to this conversation. <laughs> uh, actually, I, yes, I, I, I'm an author of six books, uh, two of which are related to Detroit. Uh, um, the one is uh, Where the Waters Go Around, Beloved Detroit, um, and that's uh, Cascade Press out of uh, Eugene, Oregon. Uh, and the other, which is a cast community uh, publishing house uh, volume is called Dying Well, The Resurrected Life of Jeannie Wiley Kellerman. And that's really, in, in many ways, rooted around the, the Detroit Catholic worker uh, community here in, uh, here in Detroit. Um, she, she died uh, 13 years ago uh, of a real aggressive brain tumor, which she was a remarkable uh, person and and partner and she really did uh, had no 
the freedom of the resurrection to to die well. Oh. Thank you so much, Bill, for sharing that with us. And thank you, Lydia. You all have been great. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> I wish you all the best moving forward. Uh-huh. Uproar is a project of Motor City Wesley. Check us out at MotorCityWesley.org.